Welcome to Because and Effect, a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation, where we talk to people about the causes they care about and the effect that it has on their lives. My name is Nolan Bicknell. The term heritage has been all over the news lately, from history to architecture and everything in between. Now more than ever is society discussing the importance and impact of our heritage. Cindy Tugwell is the Executive Director of Heritage Winnipeg, and thanks in part to over 28 years with the organization, her perspective is priceless. We started realizing the power also, which you'll find interesting, is stop being the little engine that couldn't and be the little engine that could. So we were small, but we were mighty. And to stop that mindset of thinking we can't make a difference Mm. because we're too small, one person, as you know, can make a profound difference. So changing our mindset came along with all of that. I sat down with Sydney Tugwell, Executive Director of Heritage Winnipeg, to talk about how to learn important lessons from history, the value of architecture and design at a city level, and how heritage influences culture in 2020. Cindy Tugwell, thank you for joining us on the Because and Effect podcast. It's great to see you again. The last, I think the last time we saw you was for the Because shoot with the, uh, with the signs there. So it's good to see you even through Zoom. It's a pleasure and very nice to see you also. So as Executive Director of Heritage Winnipeg, what, what maybe for people who haven't even heard of the organization, what is Heritage Winnipeg? What, what all do you guys do? Well, we, we're very diverse, but to simplify it in the beginning, we're here for the protection and the conservation of Winnipeg's built heritage and the many facets that uh, that entails. But really, um, we were incorporated in 1978 as a charitable nonprofit. Um, We were created by the city, the province, and then Heritage Canada Foundation as a watchdog organization, and it was purely from grassroots. So um, ironically, one of the projects that we're heavily involved in is the Millennium Centre, and that was one of the first buildings that was on the chopping block. And, you know, public support and groundswell created our organization because of that. So how has this whole epidemic affected your day-to-day things? I'm assuming more Zoom meetings, as we all kind of have, but uh, maybe give me a breakdown of how this has affected your day-to-day and then the organization's day-to-day as well. Um, I think in general, it's affected our funding. Um, certainly, I think we're not in the, we're in the same boat with a lot of uh, other organizations and businesses. So I'd say the cancellation of fundraisers certainly had a huge profound effect on us. The uncertainty of what we could plan even for the fall or the winter had you know that uncertainty. And certainly the execution of big events where we count on people showing up. We were doing a lot of our free events in the pre-COVID Um, to be able to start the synergy of having free public events, whether they were seminars or workshops to educate people or they were walking tours or what have you. And that has really um, impeded that kind of um, progress. Yeah. Have you ever seen anything like this in your career, like anything along these lines that matches up? No, but one thing that's taught me all the years, I've been here 28 years, and what it's taught me is look to history to look to not only the present, but the future. And when you look to history, whether it was women winning the vote or, you know, Black Lives Matter in the United States or worldwide internationally changes uh, against racism, climate change, anything that's profound and changes society for generations to come, comes from groundswell and advocacy. And change comes, um, I always look at the silver lining, I say, the power of the people, there's a lot of animosity, but once that comes collectively, education happens and we all come together. I think that um, great things come, societal change comes from that. There is, an, Rest. there is an air of optimism in your voice from this. Is there any historical precedence of you know having 
almost like a shutdown of society for X amount of time that you can remember? Or is this a whole new world? Well, again, I looked to history. I wasn't part of the 1919 general strike. Um, I wasn't part of winning, you know, women winning the vote. I wasn't part of the civil unrest in the 60s um, with racism. I have that passion in me innately. Um, and what it does is it fires me up. It gets me excited because the power of your voice and the power of one voice, let alone collectively, um, has a profound effect. So I would say probably the 1919 general strike. Um, I would say that that had a profound effect on change um, to sort of mimic COVID. It was coming off the Spanish flu and hygiene was a big um, uh, issue on the forefront because certainly in the North End and parts of Winnipeg, they were still living in very um, terrible conditions. So there was a change from hygiene and living conditions and paying a better wage for the average person. And so there was a real societal change right across the board that I think was very profound that not only affected Winnipeg, obviously, but all of North America. It's pretty crazy to be a part of it, for sure. It's you said, exciting. It is exciting in a way. Yeah, definitely. I'm kind of in the same boat. You said 28 years. Do you Have you been with Heritage for 28 years? That's correct. Very cool. So why why heritage? Like what what made you decide to make this your your life? I call it fate because I I came from real estate. Um, I had worked in real estate prior to heritage, and 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 ironically, I never really learned a lot about social history in my school years. But obviously, there was a thirst for that. But there was also a disconnect that I'd learned something that happened historically, and I didn't understand how it affected me. Once I started learning about history and the continuity of, of all these different things and how it profoundly affects your quality of life, whether you're a woman, a man, a, you know, what, whatever your, your demographics are, um, I started getting a passion for it and really loving it. Um, so it was fate that I kind of stumbled upon the job and then I created my own creative space and I moved, I was younger in the industry, in the conservation industry. Um, I was certainly the youngest, um, and I wondered why younger people weren't more excited and involved in, in conservation and understanding the breadth of how it affected everyday, everyday life. And I think I was able to bring at the time that um, younger perspective, if you will. And now I'm the older one, and now it's exciting with my students and different programs we're involved in to get their perspective. Um, so it, it's really about involving all age demographics. Do you subscribe to that old adage that if those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it? Yes, I do believe that, that history is education. I think it's, it's somebody saying, here's the education of the past. Here's what's happened, even the evolution. You can go far back to you know, um, um, Canada as a country in 1867. You can go far back to hundreds of years of understanding that this is why these things happen politically. There had to be will of the people. These are the kinds of changes that needed to happen, systemic changes. And I think if we look to that and we educate ourselves and we become collectively one voice, I think that we can become a, a hugely um, wonderful society. Yeah. A lot of the executive directors I talk to on this pod, I feel like I'm very lucky. I get to talk to you know some very passionate people in very niche specific things, but almost all of them tend to say that their job is about education and their job is about advocacy more so than running the organization because first you have to educate and the public needs to understand what that what the heck it is you're even talking about when you say heritage right so what part of your job is just 
educating people? And then how do you make heritage something that is educationally interesting to the average citizen? Oh, we're involved. I can give you sort of an overview from a personal, like of a business perspective of Heritage Winnipeg's model. We're doing a lot of, we've, we've updated our website and redesigned it. Um, we're doing tons of digital projects. We started in 2004 with our virtual library. Last year, we did a fantastic digital project on the 1919 general strike. We did mm -hmm. a beautiful lighting display of the history on the Bank of British North America and subsequently all digital information to spread across the country. The day-to-day -day is always, um, from my perspective as being um, an executive director, is guidance, direction of where you want to go. And the nice thing about the heritage sector is we always look 5, 10, 15, 20, 50 years ahead of time. We had the same foresight, I believe, that a lot of our forefathers that created this city and certainly at the turn of the 20th century understood that if you build it and you want something and you want quality it's for generations to come as opposed to the myopic thinking now politically is the four-year term mm. but the problem with and we're very passionate education and advocacy are probably our, our our highest priorities with our organization but the difficulty is they're very intangible it takes generations to see change Advocacy is something that I do constantly with City Hall. Sometimes I have a positive impact. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it doesn't go the way I want it. Doesn't mean it has a negative. It means that we've had our we we we've we've exercised our voice of democracy, whether we fail or we succeed. That's very important. And education could be not only digital projects, but student programs with Canada Summer, with Young Canada Works. I've um, this will be coming up my third year with the Met program, the Met High School program. Um, we used to, time constraints though, with um, lack of capacity, we used to go into schools and do presentations. We used to celebrate Manitoba with a school. We do the Manitoba Day now with the museum. I think really everything that we do in some way, depending on the demographics, whether it's free workshops, shops or seminars or Zoom calls or even calling up other nonprofit organizations that need our help and need our guidance or community groups or neighborhoods. It's all about education. Mm -hmm. But the frustrating part is it's very intangible. So when somebody wants to be results, you can't give those kind of results on a yearly basis like you may be able to do in social services or in the healthcare system. Right. You really have to think big picture. Yes. Have, have, have you spoken with other cities when it comes to their heritage plans and their heritage approaches? And how does Winnipeg sort of match up when it comes to how our citizens look, look to our heritage versus other cities in, in the country? Well, I was I had the pleasure of being Manitoba governor of the Heritage Canada Foundation, now the National Trust for Canada for six years. And what those two terms really was an education for me to bring back to benefit Heritage Winnipeg. But also it was very important, as you said, to gauge what's going on across the country. And that was very important because I don't believe in reinventing the wheel. So if somebody in Montreal or Toronto is doing something well, and they're very far ahead of us just due to population density. So I look to a lot and the National Trust for Canada is based in Ottawa and that's really what they want to do. It's a partnership to cultivate local and provincial organizations under one national umbrella mm -hmm. to look at tax credits, for instance, on income tax. If you own um, heritage properties, could you write off tax credits? Will there be grants available? Um, what kind of commitment does the federal government take on heritage conservation? You know, I heard somewhere beyond uh, around 30% of all the religious structures could be gone in the next 10 to 20 years just because they are um, unable to keep these churches feasible with, with shrinking congregations. Different commitments. I think there's a lot of political 
um, involvement to understand going past the four years, as I mentioned, what direction um, Canada wants to take. And it's interesting because in my tenure of being here over the last 10 years, what I've seen is a lot of young people now really love architecture, really love the old buildings, love the fact with climate change being front and center, that this is reusable, sustainable development. It creates local jobs, it, jobs, it creates safety. It makes our city unique. It makes us feel proud because we have an identity of who we are. And where's the first place I tell people when you go on vacation, most people go is to a historic district, um, a historic neighborhood, um, Europe or Asia or anywhere you go, you want to learn about the country or the city. And in order to learn about the country or the city, you go to where their heritage is. So I think it's, it's, it's trying to get Winnipegers to understand what a beautiful city they really do have and how important it is to make wise decisions today so 50 years from now, we still can be talking about what an amazing collection of buildings we have. Yeah, exactly. Very well said. Uh, if you could rec recommend a Winnipegger or, or a tourist to come in and learn about Winnipeg, what are the top three or top four or five places or areas or things that they need to see to really understand the context of Winnipeg and, and really get a, a good sense of the heritage and, and history? Um, you know, it, it could be debated. I certainly think to be uh, diverse, I would I would certainly say um, Armstrong's Point as our first heritage conservation district. The enclave of about 133 homes now being protected, not only based on home by home, but area and streetscape and future building development that's going to happen. Um, exchange district unequivocally my favorite. Um, you know, I don't want to focus always on the exchange district, but the Exchange District has a collection of about 129 buildings that um, are second to none in North America at turn of the century warehouse buildings. And I think the support that it, it comes with the unique businesses, the local businesses, all the things that come with heritage conservation, affordable spaces, affordable housing, um, all the kinds of things that you want to see in the heart of your downtown, which the Exchange is. So I would say come to the exchange because you can learn about the history of Winnipeg and how we evolved and certainly the direction and how innovative we are as a city in how we use um, adaptive reuse for heritage buildings, additions, changes of use. Um, you heard on the news recently that the Métis, uh, Manitoba Métis Federation is going to be um, taking, they purchased the Bank of Montreal on Portage of Maine. That's going to be a national heritage, Métis Heritage Centre. I think it's unprecedented to see now that we're having the indigenous culture assimilate into um, what we called colonialism and certainly purchasing from a bank like Bank of Montreal where it was purpose built. I think it was one of the oldest continuous um, banks um, in Canada as far as staying in their own original space. And those kinds of things are the story, the evolution, if you will, of heritage conservation, not just who built it and what age it is and what style of architecture, but how did it adapt through the changes of times and society and the needs and the wants of, of society to say they can adapt, they can mm -hmm. be an integral part. So that's a new phase, I think. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Does anything surprise you anymore after 28 years of sort of researching and learning and all this stuff? Is there anything that pops out and you're like, oh, I had, I had no idea that we had that uh, connection? Probably ignorance. Mm. Story to be negative, but probably no, no, no. the thing that surprises me the most is ignorance. I think that back in the 50s and 60s and certainly um, up until the mid 70s till um, Heritage Canada uh, was incorporated, 
I think the issue had been, we were ignorant to society. We didn't really know why we um, wanted to conserve built heritage. What was the benefit long-term to society? It was just old, get rid of it, support new development, the construction industry, jobs, all of those things. It surprises me that 40, 45, 50 years later, we still are dealing with that kind of mentality, certainly from local politicians, um, from, from developers, and, and just society as a whole really doesn't understand the real complexity and breadth of what heritage conservation does for your city and for your province and for your country. Um, and that's where education has to continue and the conversation has to continue. Yeah, for sure. I don't know if you'll you'll have an opinion on this, but you seem like you might be uniquely qualified. Um, there's a pretty heated debate on removing statues and things down in the South right now that are, some people say heritage, some people say history, some people say irrelevant. Do you have any thoughts on, on, on that stuff or, or what is going on down there and if, if it's at all relevant to your work? Well, I have a personal perspective. I'm not sure if it's relevant, but it, I guess it encompasses a sort of general um, perspective of how I feel of heritage. I think in those particular cases with the Confederate uh, statues and different things, we don't want to, my personal feeling is take them down. They're contentious. It's not doing society any good to have people keep looking at those as a constant reminder of all the horrific things that happened. But that doesn't um, preclude the fact that we have to remember what our history is, where we came from, and learn about it. I think a statue is celebratory. I think whenever I've been involved in a statue, the, the one that comes to mind is the Eaton statue that we protected and advocated. It was designated by the province and subsequently um, put in the uh, MTS Center as a part of the history of losing the Eaton's building. That was celebratory. It was saying Eaton's was a big part of our society. It was a it was a positive part of our society. And so the statue replicates. So concurrent with not forgetting where your history, what the history is about and learning from it, statues in those particular cases are not celebratory anymore and nobody should be celebrating. So I think they should come down, but people need to get educated to understand why they're coming down and what is the contentious history behind it. Agreed. Yeah, very well said. We had this, we had a... I don't want to say argument, but heated debate uh, around the dinner table a couple weekends ago with some family friends and stuff about it. And I tried to explain that exact thing is that a statue is more of a of a glorification of of, a, of an event, whereas if it was in a in a museum or in somewhere that's contextually appropriate, like Germany does with with, you know, Holocaust sites i fully understand that but yeah but i could add as a footnote that it goes to show you when those statues were erected at that point in time in history that's where society was that's where their thinking was so really it should be a testament to how we've evolved and i mm -hmm. think isn't life about evolvement isn't it about ever learning and ever getting better at whatever we do um so that's a testament to look back and say at that point in time we were celebrating that history now we're revolting against and we want it removed i think it's a great place to be progress hey progress i i i was i was told to ask you if you know what the chicago of the north means is has winnipeg been referred to as the chicago of the north and what does that mean or do you know what that means well i've heard two different versions of that um chicago of the north certainly there was no architectural school at, in winnipeg manitoba at the time so a lot up until the 60s and so a lot of architects were coming from the United States and Toronto had been um, schooled in Chicago in, in a lot of places in, in the United States, but primarily the sort of um, 
Richardsonian type architecture, Chicago of the North, the warehouses, the large, mm. um, typically large floor plate buildings with the large um, windows, bay windows, arch windows. Cool. It was very typical of Chicago. And because we were sort of mimicked and we were so fast growing um, as a lot of places in, in the United States like Chicago, Minneapolis, um, St. Paul, um, certainly the connection with the railroad, people look to us as that kind of fast development. So it could be architectural, it could be the development or the style of architecture. Interesting. Cool. Yeah. I, I, I read that somewhere and I was like, ah, maybe Cindy could shine some light on that. So thank you. Um, so is there anything about the advocacy side of things that, I mean, you seem very optimistic and very positive, but whenever I speak to advocates or any anyone really they say that because progress is so slow it, it can get pretty frustrating at times so where do you land when it comes to you know you you have a goal and even if it's 5 10 15 20 years down the line how do you have the patience to to wait that long for progress to be made um a lot of practice um i think you get into the heritage sector you learn very early on that you may it may take i was involved with friends of upper fort gary in 2000 maybe 1999 when we started our first meeting we didn't get incorporated till 2008 or 2020 and we're just doing the third phase of the visitor center on the vacant lot I think you have patience because you understand the process and the involvement of volunteers and how much mm. hard work goes into, I mean, if we all had a big paycheck and we all could say, here, here's funding and we can do this, but that isn't the reality. But the thing that really is a positive kind of way for me to look at it is that this is the power of the people and mm. that we can actually persuade painstakingly through years or decades of work. But when it's completed, the satisfaction um, is tenfold if it takes 10 years of feeling when you develop something in a year, people say, well, it came and now we move on. It's almost like when you save up all your allowance when you're a child and you're saving for a year to buy a bike as a versus you're just saving up to get a bag of candy. By the time you buy that bike after a year of hard work and saving, you would not believe the satisfaction. That's what keeps me motivated. That's what keeps me optimistic is the power of partnership, the power of volunteerism, and and really the um, amazing feeling of accomplishing something that will be around for generations. Obviously, COVID-19 has sort of put a hold or a pause on things, or at least delayed some stuff generally. I know Doors Open was one of my most fun events uh, in years past, going down to the exchange and kind of checking out all the new businesses and stuff. So what have you guys done to adjust? Is there still plans to do Doors Open or what... Can you just give me a little bit of a roadmap for the next maybe six months to a year? Well, it, it was it was highly debated. I think the easy thing to do was say, well, we couldn't have it the end of May. And this is our 17th year and we have been growing and we really feel it's a huge um, contribution to the city. Free event, which is very important. And we thought about it after and we thought if we can try and keep um, the event at least salvage it enough to have it in the fall if the rules um, of social distancing and, and getting together have eased a bit, but still allow us to partake. It's such an important event from, again, going back into the diversity of heritage conservation. It's about showcasing all those nonprofit community organizations, showing amazing space, whether you're immigrants or whether you're a Winnipegger or whether you're a visitor to the city. I think free more than ever with COVID, a free event is very, very important. 
those people who are out of work. And also learning about your history, it's our obligation, we feel again, to be able to slowly show people not about just the history of the building, but how these buildings have been adapted and now how they're re being reused and how they are a viable part of our economy, um, cultural um, society, the arts community, the social economic um, sector, uh, whether it's uh, heritage films, uh, you know, the film sector, film industry, visitors coming to Winnipeg to showcase mm -hmm. through Civic Pride, beautiful architecture, interesting cultural spaces. So you can see the breadth of how we see doors open, although you may just enjoy opening the doors and going and seeing beautiful architecture. Mm -hmm. But I think subliminally we're showing people um, the very element of what we're trying to protect. And I think with climate change, we're attracting a lot of the younger um, generations, demographics, that really say, if we have a Pepsi can and we finish it, and we put it in the recycling bin so somebody can reuse it, why aren't we doing that with beautiful buildings? To keep in mind, they're not just old. They were built with stone foundations and massive timber beams. And many of these buildings, as you know, took two and three years to build. Now they're going up in two and three months. We are not building to the level, nor could we afford to to the level that these turn of the century, 20th century buildings were built. And I think a lot of people have to understand what constitutes the very fundamental issue of heritage. Yeah, sustainability. No one would really maybe intertwine those like sustainability and heritage with one another, but now you're you're understanding. I if think you the younger something. generations are because, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of the baby boomers didn't weren't raised with the feeling that climate mattered. It wasn't mm -hmm. front and center. I think in the last five years, you can see even advocates across the world, they're younger and younger. And I think the younger kids not only get it from a climate change perspective, but the beautiful architecture and the historic character defining elements, you can't see this in an innocuous new build. And I think people are saying they love the uniqueness. They love the, in fact, I know younger um, IT companies and even Amazon are picking um, historic buildings and places mm. for their employees to be employed in because that's what they're asking for, mm -hmm. as opposed to just being in an industrial park or an innocuous shopping center. Yeah, it's nice to see. I mean, you must have seen such a change in nearly three decades of work. Like, is it, it's pretty cool. It must be pretty cool to look back on and see where you started out and where people's mindsets were when it came to climate change and, and architecture and everything. And now to see in 2020 where everyone's at. Did you ever sort of think that there would be that much progress or... I think you can look, there's there's another testimony to why history is important. You can look back as a barometer to see how successful or, 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 or areas that you can improve and augment. But what really is fantastic is understanding what progress doesn't mean just the dollar. Mm -hmm. It doesn't just mean profit. And quality of life matters. In fact, Alberta as a province is recognizing heritage as part of their quality of life. Um, proposals and business plans because quality of life as you know is made up of many arteries like a big pie you don't just say well if I have more money I'm, I have a better quality of life or society is falling apart around me but as long as I'm doing okay the what COVID and Black Lives Matter and advocacy and things right now we're looking at in the news day to day the one common element is social connectivity we need each other we need the whole world to be connected because we all are connected. And it's that myopic hedonism, if for a better lack of, of words, 
that we had the mentality that a lot of baby boomers were raised in that as long as I'm doing well, doesn't matter how my neighbor's doing and go one step further. Now it doesn't matter how the, you know, the down and out part of the community are doing. I had somebody say on the radio at one moment in time in an interview, say, why do we care that we have a healthy downtown? When I talked about healthy downtowns being healthy cities. And I looked at the radio host and I said, I'm sorry, I'd be here till tomorrow trying to explain a fundamental issue like that mm-hmm. to somebody who has no understanding of how he's connected to his neighbor and how his neighbor's connected to him and the rest of the world. So my answer, my long-winded answer all role is social connectivity and a sense of place and belonging and purpose. So well said. I could not agree more. Um, so for people who are wondering, can, do you have any dates in mind for doors open or any, I mean, there, I'm guessing that fundraising events would have to probably be shifted around. What, what's coming down the pipe as far as dates for you guys? Now, one thing about heritage is we're very innovative. We love digital. So, you know, just like we love heritage conservation and new development, the marriage is very important to have both uh, the dichotomy of both. So doors open is going to be September 12th and 13th. We're going to respect all the social distancing protocols. But I think, again, it's still very important in Manitoba's 150. To me, it's still Manitoba 150 this year. We're still committed to um, um, celebrating that. We also have a very first of its kind in the province, a Manitoba Heritage Summit. And it will be eight other provincial heritage agencies, along with Heritage Winnipeg, Manitoba Historical Society, Genealogical Society, the St. Boniface Historical, a lot of us first time ever getting together um, at the millennium in a digital format to talk about what's going on with the heritage in the province and engage it and, and produce a white paper and possibly make it in an annual event so we can continue the conversation. And then another um, hopeful is our fall fundraiser. We count on our fall fundraisers to stay solvent and, and do the work that we do. And we're hoping to continue to have that on October 23rd at the Fort Gary Hotel. And again, along with all our social media, we have a wonderful weekly heritage blog that we feel is a help to educate people. Um, and if they want a quick and, and, and easy read and synopsis of what's going on. And we have a Discover It architectural website we're launching next year um, with funding, a bilingual website with funding from Commemorate uh, Canada and uh, the Virtual Museum of Canada. So we're very thankful to get the support from government. The province has supported us on the Millennium Centre, which we manage and run and would like to create a heritage centre. So we've got a lot on our plate. We just have to be able to do a lot of good strategic planning, a good strong business plan, and then go out to private sector and government and say, this is why we think this is important to do for quality of life. Absolutely. And all of that information you can find on the beautiful heritagewinnipeg.com website. Yeah, that blog was actually pretty sweet. It was nice to read through a lot of those things. I learned, you know, most of the thing, most of the blogs had something I'd be like, oh, I had no idea that. that was well, typically, thing. if you read, look at the historical reports from the city or you look at a lot of the writings in, in different, uh, you know, the academic writing, it, it's long winded. It doesn't give mm-hmm. full context. This is just a, a very nice, um, quick way with some nice pictures to give a snapshot um, of why we think that this building or this issue or 
community, whatever kind of story it is, is important. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, Cindy, at the end of our time together, I ask the same seven questions of all of my guests. Uh, We call it the just because segment where it's, you know, about the causes you care about and how it's affected your life. You okay to answer for us? I'm great. All right. So question one is what's the first cause you ever actually remember caring about? You know, probably in my mind, I thought about that. And I think something that resonated, I couldn't really think of anything strong was women's equality, Mm. women's rights. I started uh, watching my mom working. My grandmother didn't uh, work um, to an old age. My mom was, uh, you know, raising children working. And that inequality of, you know, difference in pay and different opportunities for higher um, paying positions and higher powered jobs, it just bothered me and I started realizing that as I was working and that sort of got the advocacy part of me long before I started with Heritage Winnipeg it got it rolling inside of me and moving that was a similar answer for um, my friend Cynthia who I had on the podcast maybe I don't know 30 episodes ago or so but she had a story about her one of her math teachers in high school that used to staple hairdresser applications onto her math test and I was like, excuse me, that it was a real person? And she's like, yeah. I, and she said the first time she actually remembers like standing up to him and saying, this is unacceptable. And like, yeah, so. Well, it's times- interesting because when I started with Heritage Winnipeg, it was predominantly men. Mm, yeah. You know, the board were predominantly men and, and most of the CEOs in organizations and government that we dealt with were all men. So I started just, whether it was subliminally and, and not really obvious, but I started realizing where are all the women? Because uh, after working with a lot of uh, strong women, I realized they were in many cases better suited for the position than the men. Mm-hmm. Interesting times. Uh, so question two, if money and politics and logistics were no issue at all for you, you could just snap your fingers. What's the first thing you would do in support of Heritage Winnipeg? Oh my gosh, if all those things weren't a factor, I would uh, have complete transparency, change of policy, increase grants, increase education to get the counselors um, to have a special fund to be able to understand why this is important. You have to understand right now in the city of Winnipeg, it's ad hoc. These grants, mm. these programs all depend on what, for, what counselors are in there for that four-year term. I'd like to see something definitive, but you know what I'd like to see? Fairness. Um, there's a lot of behind-the-door deals and a lot of things that really are not transparent, not fair. Um, and policies can prevent that, as you know, depend, you know, no matter who's in there, if you have a strong policy and checks and balances in place. So I'd like to see um, change of policy, strong policy to disallow new counselors from coming in and making terrible decisions. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. That, that sounds a little bit uh, difficult to deal with. But <laughs> Question three, what's the biggest misunderstanding or mis- biggest stigma about uh, heritage? And I thought about that too. And then for the lack of a better word, I think because people think it's frivolous. I think mm. that uh, people are homeless, people are on, uh, um, you know, illicit drugs and people, um, you know, healthcare and, 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 and animals, humane. Say, all of those causes are so, so important. I support them all. Um, but when you look at the hierarchy of where heritage becomes, where we get sadly, um, you know, to the bottom. So I think, if we can introduce all those things that I had talked about earlier in your show about increasing safety on the street, in, in, uh, um, increasing affordable housing, um, supporting small business, supporting affordable space for nonprofits who are predominantly in the exchange, all the things that create a healthy downtown, a healthy city, partnerships with these nonprofits. 
um, that really resonates to me on the changes systematically that you can make to your quality of life. But sadly, the misconception is it's just frivolous. You're just protecting some cool architecture for people to look at maybe as they walk by. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's one that's one thing I've really learned since starting at the foundation and since starting this podcast is that everything's intertwined. Business, philanthropy, heritage, culture, you know, every problem is not in its own silo and everything can be, you know, elevated by elevating one, it'll elevate everyone. Well, since 1985, we've done our annual preservation awards. And uh, for 35 years, we've been able to gauge all the award winners. So to give you an example, all the conservation award winners each year, distinguished service, all of that. I did a tally. We're talking about several billion dollars that has added to our economy. And that also does not include the film industry. That does not involve the tourism industry. Um, so when you think of the contribution to our economy and creates local jobs and all the other arteries that we talked about, I think it becomes very important. But the misconception, again, is that it's frivolous. It's not really that important. Right. Yeah, that's so right. Question four, what's a time in your life where you had to pivot because plan A wasn't working out, so you had to go with plan B? I wanted to... Think there's been many moments, but if I think I wanted to, gen to make a general statement, I'd say around 2000 when the millennium changed to the 21st century. I had just started to feel really comfortable with Heritage Winnipeg. I'd started in, in the 90s. I really didn't know where the organization was going. It was floundering. It was being reactive. I wanted to be proactive. And I felt like 2000 is when the Millennium Center was purchased and started as a public entity. I was starting to understand the identity of the city and how I could work within the confines of the mm -hmm. process. And also starting to change the mindset that we had to start changing the politicians' views on heritage so that those decisions would resonate. I often say, when anybody says to me, who is the most important level of government um, that you need to convince and educate. And I say unequivocally, it's your local, local, local government. Your local government sets the stage for so much. There's a very important role for provincial and as we know, federal, but local is where you want to make the change. And um, we started doing more digital projects because we wanted to reach more demographics and a wider audience and the younger audience. We started realizing the power also, which you'll find interesting, is stop being the little engine that couldn't and be the little engine that could. So we were small, but we were mighty. And to stop that mindset of thinking we can't make a difference mm. because we're too small, one person, as you know, can make a profound difference. So changing our mindset came along with all of that. Very well said. Yeah, and you've made a profound difference, absolutely, over the last uh, 28 years and, and more, I'm sure. Question six is, what advice would you give your 10-year-old self if you could talk to her right now? Oh, boy. Um, I, I kind of thought about that, too, and something that I was part of um, for different programs and different conversations when I speak would be passion. I have to say, follow your heart, follow your passion, your work, whether you change jobs over the years, your work is something that is so profound to your life and such an integral part of your happiness because it's such a big, you know, time uh, um, of your, of your life. Passion, follow your passion. I know you have to put food on the table, so certainly don't follow something that's not lucrative. But if you follow, if I was told when I was 10 and believe in yourself, 
I think that was part of what the first question about um, what was your first sort of advocacy cause believing in yourself and as a woman you were always taught if you were around the board table with all men your voice is there to be heard but it really doesn't matter and the confidence that you accumulate with the continuity of working with people who care with mm -hmm. that passion combined with that education and that expertise you can be a profound voice to the community woman or not Oh, beautifully said. Poetic, even. I love it. Uh, last question. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, last question is the hardest one. What do you want to be remembered for? Yeah, I was thinking about that because I'm either loved or not loved. So um, <laughs> that's um, so I I thought about that too. And again, I'm, I'll give you the explanation. But the two words would be community and partnership. I want to be remembered for Heritage Winnipeg being a community leader and player and working with other organizations, working with other neighborhoods and communities and politicians, but also to be fair um, and, and to have conviction. Mm -hmm. So I think that those are very, very important um, assets to have because if you're strong on your convictions, whether you win or lose, you can move forward because those convictions haven't changed. Now, it doesn't mean you can't be open-minded, but I think if I was to be remembered, I want people, and I think most people would say she had passion. May not have been the smartest duck in the room around the table. I may not have known all the answers, but working together is so important. I was taught um, very early on, Bernie Wolf was uh, involved with Heritage Winnipeg when I came aboard, and he often said, your um, expertise of the people that you surround yourself with resonate to you so the more um, expertise and the more wonderful people that you are involved with in the community and volunteers they make your organization look good so that partnership and that bringing nobody needs the accolades i don't care who gets the accolades as long as we're successful in accomplishing what we set out to accomplish beautiful well i can speak for the foundation and say we all love you at the winnipeg foundation thank, thank you, for being, you thanks thank for being you. a part of our uh, because campaign uh, earlier in the year photos look great and you're absolutely wonderful. my pleasure anytime that i get to talk about heritage winnipeg i'm a big smile on my face i love it thanks cindy we appreciate your time thanks for being on the podcast thank you Thank you again, Cindy, for the wonderful conversation. Uh, as we mentioned earlier in the chat, there's tons of great stuff at heritagewinnipeg.com. So if you enjoyed this conversation or want to learn a little bit more, uh, there's, a, like we said, a really cool blog and lots of, lots of good stuff to read. So again, heritagewinnipeg.com for more information. Thank you for listening as well. Uh, to hear any other episodes of the podcast, you can visit becauseandeffect.org or wherever you happen to be listening now, just search Because and Effect for all 44 previous episodes. All music on the show is produced and composed by Trenton Burton. You can hear more of his music at trentonburton.com. Because and Effect is a podcast of the Winnipeg Foundation. To learn more about the foundation, please visit wpgfdn.org or search at wpgfdn on all social media platforms as well. I'm Nolan Bicknell, signing off. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. And remember, we are not makers of history. We are made by history. Goodbye. <laughs>